my name is Dario Hasenstab. I have a degree in international affairs, and I'm here with Balder Hagritz, a former university professor of mine, as well as an IR consultant. And together, we're bursting the Western bubble. Today, we will analyze how to understand the media coverage of Ukraine through the lens of the Western bubble. Because while Western societies have many strengths and significant weaknesses, in order to analyze these, we use the concept of the Western bubble. If you would like to know more about how this podcast started, the concept, or who we are, make sure to listen to our introduction episode. Um, but as always, before we start, a little bit of housekeeping. Uh, as uh, most of you know, is that last week we, or two weeks ago, we really started advertising this podcast after, after having a bit of a trial period uh, in uh, over the summer. And so a, a warm welcome to all of our new listeners. We're happy to see so many of you joining our endeavor to burst the Western bubble. We will continue to developing uh, this podcast and we're looking forward to your question and questions and comments to thewesternbubble at gmail.com. When you submit a question, please indicate if you would like us to name you or if it is an anonymous submission, which um, already leads us to today's question of the week. Because a listener from New York has sent us uh, this question uh, saying, isn't it obvious that the West is doing the right thing by supporting Ukraine? Why do you have a problem with people cheering for Ukrainian success? Um, Boulder, why won't you allow the Ukrainians to, to cheer a little bit in joy for, for regaining territory recently? I absolutely will, Dario. And I think it's an important question, especially in the context of this uh, episode. L let's start with the beginning. The Russians, the Russian state invaded U Ukraine, and it's absolutely right and proper for the world to condemn that for two reasons. First of all, because they broke the Westphalian rules that we've already discussed. You are not allowed to invade another country. And that's exactly what Russia did because Ukraine is an independent country. And even the Russians would agree that, uh, to that. So that's one very important reason why it's wrong what Russia did and why it's absolutely right for Ukraine to defend itself. And secondly, anyone who starts a voluntary war is on a very moral, a uh, very dodgy moral path. Uh, because any war is going to create an awful lot of human suffering on both sides. It's going to create civilian uh, casualties. It's going to create destruction. It's a lot of young men and women who are in the army will die. So you should never, ever start a voluntary war. And Russia starting a voluntary war against Ukraine is absolutely wrong. So there's absolutely no problem. Uh, in fact, it is the right thing to do. And I include myself in this group, for people to say, we want Russia out of Ukraine, and Ukraine is absolutely entitled and legitimate to defend itself. See, for me, it's especially this part about doing the right thing. Um, yes, it's obviously, as you mentioned, the right thing to condemn this. But then when it comes to supporting Ukraine, especially on what levels, uh, I think I think that's a very dif important differentiation to make, is whether you're sending humanitarian aid, is whether you're sending um, military support, is whether you're actually... Uh, partaking in the war. Uh, so, so that's something where I would always like to, to draw the line when it comes to then people cheering for Ukrainian success is that this is usually related to, as you already mentioned, suffering on both sides. Um, and I think one of the examples that we may have mentioned previously is people cheering for oh, another 5,000 Russian soldiers have fallen. And that's just something that as a human, I personally have, have difficulties with is cheering for the death of anyone. Absolutely. And that systemic behavior, a systematic behavior where people 
start basically dehumanizing the Russians as some kind of evil, uh, you know, almost fancy Tolkien-esque force about to swamp the innocent Ukrainians is a very dangerous approach to this because these are 18-year-olds, sometimes younger, sometimes older, boys, mostly boys in the Russian army, uh, who have absolutely no responsibility for the decisions that are being taken at a geopolitical level. And every time we have some kind of glowing article that says another 10,000 Russian soldiers died, then we are actually saying that we're happy that 10,000 18-year-old boys are now being grieved for by their families. And um, that is apparently then a good thing. The, the danger in all of this is not so much saying we want Russia out of Ukraine. I want Russia out of Ukraine for a healthy international system. And also, if you like, from a personal moral perspective, it is absolutely wrong for the Russians to be where they are and they need to get out as quickly as they can. But from a Western bubble perspective, there's much more going on. And there is this sense that this is a fight of objective evil versus objective good. The liberal democratic Ukraine, which by the way is a questionable thing, Ukrainian democracy is not all that. Uh, but the idea, because Ukraine is nominally democratic, we somehow identify with them. And because Russia is some form of dictatorship, some kind of form of authoritarian regime, we put them in the dark corner, in the ones who are evil, who need to be defeated. And we start identifying with a war way beyond the obvious human suffering that hopefully we all identify with, into we are part of it. We, it's almost as if the West is fighting this war alongside Ukraine. And this, of course, is being stimulated by people like Zelensky, who love milking this, who love putting himself on the breach like I'm a defender of liberal Western values against the horrible dictator Vladimir Putin. We buy into that. And that's when I start being very concerned because our behavior becomes irrational, becomes counterproductive and becomes a party to the actual violence. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and we were very happy that uh, this listener from New York submitted this question because it does lead perfectly into today's topic uh, where we want to analyze uh, Ukraine and how particularly the Western media uh, has dealt with, with Ukraine, has reported on it. Uh, but before we, we jump into our analysis, uh, as always, uh, we're starting with our first category. What are the facts in two minutes? This episode is slightly different from the usual format because we will analyze third-party media clips to showcase the Western media bubble. Even though the Western public has typically been critical of its media in general, with opinion polls showing mistrust in mainstream media, this is mostly related to domestic and particularly partisan concerns. However, when it comes to foreign policy reporting, trust has been higher, in particular among groups that have received more formal education. The overall sense is that Western media plays an important role in exposing human rights abuses and propaganda of non-democratic governments. Since the Russian invasion of the, uh, Ukraine, Western media has been reporting non-stop on the violence, um, and this has been simultaneously to Western society supporting Ukraine's efforts to repel the Russians. And with this, moving on to uh, the next category where we start analyzing. What is the bubble? And the, the object of our analysis today uh, will be uh, Anglo-Saxon media, uh, simply because uh, this is an English-speaking podcast and not all of our listeners speak 
uh, some of the languages that we speak. Uh, so yeah, that's the reason why we will mostly be focusing on English-speaking outlets, uh, simply because this is an English-speaking podcast. Uh, and despite uh, that, it's uh, simply the fact that the Anglo-Saxon world is a bit more extreme uh, when it comes to the reporting on, on the Ukraine war, and simply they make up the majority of the Western bubble. In the last episode, we talked about Great Britain, and the Anglo-Saxon world, in many ways, is a very clear vanguard of the Western bubble. So everything we discuss applies to the West in general. You could even, to a certain extent, apply it to countries like Japan or South Korea that sometimes are considered part of the geopolitical West, but the vanguard of the Western bubble is absolutely the United States, Canada, the United Kingdom, in large part because they genuinely believe themselves to be these defenders of freedom and democracy and liberalism much more than most other countries. And another thing that is uh, very important for us to mention is that, of course, while we criticize uh, the media, um, this should not serve as any, any grounds uh, for any conspiracy theories about there being some form of organized propaganda machine, state-led or privately-led on the Western media. I mean, in general, they, there is neutral, factual reporting uh, on most matters uh, in the world. It's just that here we specifically analyze the uh, media, media behavior towards the Ukraine war and how the Western bubble plays into that. Well, I'm not even sure if there is actual neutral reporting, but it's absolutely true what you're saying, that there is uh, no centralized propaganda machine as there would be in the Soviet Union, or maybe in, in Russia in 2022, or maybe in Beijing in China in 2022. Uh, they, the West absolutely does not have that same kind of government-led propaganda machine that some other types of regimes might have. That doesn't mean that that there is no actual propaganda, that there's no narrative being pushed that helps governments and that also helps other powers that be within Western society. And I think that's the main issue that we are trying to communicate in this podcast episode, namely the idea that even though journalists are on the surface and in practice on a daily basis, free from government interference, they don't get phone calls, angry phone calls from ministers, uh, typically, uh, that doesn't mean that they're not part of some kind of propaganda bubble and therefore part of a Western bubble. And that's what we'll expose. Exactly. And so now actually diving into the Western bubble uh, here, because as we've done so many times before, with regards to the media, what exactly is it that creates this bubble around the media that the coverage on Ukraine has been the way it, it, it is? Very much the, the simple answer would be the Western bubble, right? It is, it is a, a system where people within European or North American societies walk around believing that they hold this morally superior position to other types of regimes. And when I say people, people who listen to the news, but also people who make the news, journalists, they, one of the main topics for foreign correspondence of Western media is how democratic rights are being violated in other countries, how human rights are being violated, how other countries aren't like the West, how they mm. aren't like us. And that is bad because obviously we are good. Uh, that kind of approach to... Uh, foreign correspondence is very, very clear and obvious. Consumers also expect this from the media. And on top of that, there is also a structural 
pressure on the media, right? And a journalist doesn't work in a boat. They, they want to get a promotion. They want to get attention. They want to be appreciated by their boss, by their managers, by anyone who's above. And therefore, they know that they are expected to push for a pro-liberal, pro-Western, pro-human rights kind of uh, approach. And that is nowhere clearer at the moment than in the war with Ukraine, because we've been for, well, I wanted to say decades, but it's now almost a century, if you include the Soviet Union, being told that the Russians are bad, that the Russians are our enemy, that the Russians stand for everything that we do not stand for. And for a short period of time in the 1990s, that seemed to change. But then Putin came to power and now the Russians are back as where we like them, namely dark authoritarian regime. And we as Western society and also Western journalists jump on the opportunity to portray the war in Ukraine as one between freedom and dictatorship. See, the most convincing uh, argument you just made or, or part was... They are reporting on countries that are unlike us, uh, so they're different from us, and that there's a clear then perception um, of okay, so this is us. We're the we're we're living the correct life, and then there's the others, and you have hor terrible human rights abuses, as we talked about two episodes ago. Uh, you have you have terrible choices here. You have dictators there. Uh, there is a lot of that, especially with regards to foreign policy uh, reporting overall. Absolutely. And and we also then like to identify the good guys. So, for example, what you see is um, that we like to give, for example, Ethiopia comes to mind. We like to give Nobel Peace Prizes to people who uh, we believe is are one of us. And then it turns out that they're actually not that much like us. And then the bubble bursts. We like to identify groups in other countries that are sort of the freedom fighters, the, the, the fighters who want to be like us and we need to support them. And... That is, of course, always based on a very flawed or at least partial type of analysis. And that's exactly what's happening with Ukraine and Kiev and Zelensky now, where we have decided that Ukraine are like us. Ukraine are the ones who are defending our values. And Russians are the ones who are trying to take that away from Ukrainians. Whereas the reality is, of course, that Ukrainian society is much more complex and much less liberal and democratic and free than um, we give them credit for in many ways. But it is part of the bubble that we're in right now. And if we do not have a centralized state-led propaganda, do we then receive neutral reporting? Because what comes to mind to me is that on, as you mentioned before, on domestic issues, uh, you obviously have some more left-leaning uh, outlets, some more right-leaning outlets. But when it comes to the Russian invasion of Ukraine, I, there hasn't been a, a side that, that took another stance. There seems to be a very uni, unitary approach towards uh, the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Right, and some listeners might object to me or us using the word propaganda here, saying that propaganda has to be centralized from a government. But this is, for me, a very clear case of the practical side of propaganda. There's a huge propaganda wave in favor of Ukraine and against Russia in Western society, and it's visible in all kinds of reporting. And the problem with that is that it's done under the guise of objective reporting. Hey, I'm just reporting what I'm seeing. I'm just, I'm just here seeing mass graves created by Russians. Uh, I happen to report on it. But in reality, it's part of a real, real narrative that is being pushed. And Western media could absolutely choose another narrative. A narrative that maybe looks at both sides or if you like a pro-Russian narrative. But they don't do that. They choose a very clear anti-Russian, pro-Ukraine narrative as part of this Western bubble dynamic. 
Speaking of a pro-Russian narrative, uh, something that concerned me a little bit uh, in the, uh, I think it was February or March, um, was the banning of Russia Today in Europe. Um, I don't know if it still exists in the United States, but it was definitely the case that in, in, in the EU, uh, the state-funded uh, TV station Russia Today, uh, that usually pushes a, a pro-Russia narrative, uh, that that was banned. Um, is this part of the Western bubble? Um, or is this maybe even a move into a into a direction that at least to me is very concerning that you are banning other voices despite them maybe being wrong? But I think the answer to both of them is yes, right? It is absolutely part of this Western bubble and it's absolutely part of a propaganda machine. And the hilarious bit of that was that only a week before, if I recall correctly, it's been a while, but uh, recall correctly, uh, Moscow banned BBC and some other news outlets from reporting in Russia. And we were outraged about that. But then when we ban Russian media, then that's okay. That's okay because they're just pushing propaganda. So be the idea that we don't push propaganda, they are. We are therefore legitimized in banning them, but they are not legitimized in banning us. The, the, the hypocrisy of that is astounding and it shows how deep we deep we gone we've gone into a bubble and we can't see reality anymore. Look, either you say as a Western society, we are at war, um, we believe that we're part of the war between Ukraine and Russia and we're just going to go full in, we need to keep morale high in our own populations in Germany and Spain and the United States and we are gonna we're gonna rally behind the flag. Okay, it's not a choice I would make, but if we're open about that and we, we believe we're part of the war, fine, then the media is going to be corrupted by that. That's, that happens all the time in a war situation. But if you don't believe that we're in a war, if you don't believe that we are actually right now fighting Russia and that all the usual mechanisms of freedom uh, should be suspended, at that moment, then you cannot claim to live in a free liberal society with this kind of behavior, where first of all, you've got a media that horribly underreports on an important side of the war and a government apparatus that is pushing very dodgy dynamics, including the banning of Russian media, solely based on the idea that we don't like what they are saying. Yeah, I mean, this, this to me goes back to um, just if you as a democracy you're upholding these values. And this reminds me a little bit of uh, episode number three, the hollowing out of institutions. Um, then why are you getting on the same level as, as an autocratic state? Uh, if you are saying that, hey, we have values that are unimpeachable, basically, and there's nothing can be done about them, um, no, matter, no matter who it is, basically. And then as soon as Russia is banning, I think it was Deutsche Welle, BBC, the Gar yeah, anything along those lines, then, then, you, then you go down the same level. That to me... Again, it was very concerning. Um, not that I, I, I ever watched Russia today, um, but uh, the, the, you, it shouldn't be banned under, under, no, under no, almost no circumstances. No, absolutely. I mean, I wouldn't recommend Russia today as a news outlet. I mean, it is a Kremlin propaganda machine. There's no doubt about that. But on what criteria do you ban that? Uh, and then you complain about your own media being banned in Russia. That, that becomes a, a ridiculously gray and hypocritical area. Having said that, this is also part of the, 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 the approach of, yeah, but there's only one side to this story. The side of the story is that the Russians are doing the wrong thing. No, well, I don't want to say no one because then a listener is going to send us articles where people do talk about it. But very few journalists, very few news outlets 
have actually analyzed from a serious perspective without being critical, without by being sarcastic or ironic or anything like that, from a serious perspective, the Russian case for the war in Ukraine. It, it, it's almost, the, the attitude is almost Vladimir Putin woke up in a bad mood one morning and decided to tell his soldiers to, to cross the border as if there is no other narrative out there. Whereas there are some serious, I, I, I don't necessarily buy them, but some serious arguments behind the invasion of Ukraine by the Russians and acting as if they should be dismissed automatically offhand is very dangerous because it means that we are not getting the full picture. And I want to go back to what we said at the beginning. We should reject the war in Ukraine because Russia broke the rules and Russia should not have gone in. But let's not act as if there is no rationale behind it, as if the Russians have no point whatsoever, as if they have no justification at all for anything they do, especially given that a lot of the justification is related to our own behavior, namely the expansion of NATO. Exactly. And this goes back to uh, something that, because obviously before this episode, in the light of preparing for this episode, we watched a lot of uh, Western media coverage on the war of Ukraine. And one word that repeatedly came up was the word unprovoked. This is an unprovoked invasion. Yeah. Um, and I think that word is very much going into the direction of what you said. Is this, it's... Uh, it, to me, it reads like we are we are not allowing Putin to have a reason for this, because if if he has a reason that that would not make it, I mean, unprovoked. It is one of those things that if you really stop and think about it, and this very often happens, right? That we go on our intuition and we don't stop and think about it. <laughs> but no serious analysis, and I would argue therefore, no serious journalist can stand there and say that this war was unprovoked. It it, it there is a difference between a provocation and actually giving it to the provocation. So if you and I meet in the street and you call me a bad name, you you you, you know you you call me a swear word, that then you provoke me, hopefully I will be sensible enough not to hit you. But if I hit you, then that was wrong on my part. I should never have hit you. But it wasn't an unprovoked thing because I was provoked by you calling me something, calling me a name. Um, and that's that's sort of the same here with Ukraine. There was there were absolutely reasons why Russia was genuinely deeply concerned about Ukraine and especially how close it was getting to NATO. There were also some concerns still about Russian minorities and and and, and the fact that Ukraine just simply wasn't pro-Russian. None of this means that Russia had the right to invade Ukraine, but let's not pretend as if it was without any provocation. Let's not pretend as if it just happened because Vladimir Putin is a bad guy. Exactly, and and this entire narrative and and there's a there's a lovely term for it in German to jemandem etwas absprechen. So you're basically denying Putin to have reason behind the invasion by making it unprovoked. In my opinion, it's another step of dehumanizing the other side. Is this is so irrational, this is beyond any idea, any reasoning that the other side cannot be human. They are so terrible because there are no reasons behind this, which makes them so terrible and therefore they're not human and the other side is just pure evil. Exactly. They're just starting a war because they're the bad guys and bad guys just start wars and do horrible things and that's it. So we don't have to analyze it. Of course, the problem with all, there are lots of problems with that, but one very clear problem with that is that you are going to be very bad at finding proper solutions. Because you don't really understand what's happening. The moment you say, look, you're just the devil and you're just doing what you're doing because of your very nature, 
then there's no possibility of any type of negotiation. There's no possibility of trying to find an end to the horrible bloodshed in a mutually acceptable way. And it just becomes about defeating Putin or getting Vladimir Putin out of the office. And with this, we can move on to the next category. What is the problem? And as we, uh, as, we as we explained in the beginning, this will have a slightly different uh, structure than usually, because here we will be reviewing uh, four videos uh, that we just find very resembling of what the Western, uh, Western media bias is uh, with regards to the coverage of Ukraine. Uh, so yeah, we will be looking at four different uh, videos from three different uh, media outlets and uh, yeah, basically analyze these. So the first video you will now hear the audio from is from CNN from the 13th of September. Uh, so just, well, a few, I mean, from the point of recording a week ago. Uh, so here you have a CNN reporter reporting from the grounds in Ukraine from recently recaptured uh, Ukrainian territory. Ultimately for the Ukrainian armed forces is making sure that the senior officers of the Russian army stay on the run. If they do that, the Russian armed forces will collapse completely in Ukraine and potentially threaten the longevity of one Vladimir Putin. This couple celebrated liberation. They told me that some of their neighbors were less delighted and had blamed Ukrainian forces for shelling their homes. But he insisted the incoming shells never hit the checkpoints or Russian artillery base right outside his house, and so blamed the Russians for false flag attacks on civilians. He said the Russians behaved like pigs. They stole everything from all the empty houses before they ran away. So, Balder, after we've now listened to this, uh, I mean, I think there's two things that stand out here because these are, I mean, keep in mind, you've just listened to uh, about 40 seconds from a, a longer report, but I th we, we just thought that these were very, very symbolizing of this. I think the first one is when he talks about the, long the longevity of Vladimir Putin and how he seriously has to fear for his for his power in Russia. Which is also nicely related to a video, spoiler alert, that comes later. Uh, the the tri Almost a triumphant tone. And for those people, uh, we will link to the videos, right, Dario? We will link to the videos uh, in, the, in the description of the podcast, so if you want to watch them. Also the triumphant face of the reporter, but certainly the triumphant tone of, look, this is the successes, and they've got the Russian military on the run, and this could eventually lead to the fall of Vladimir Putin. Well, that has nothing very much to do anymore with actual the, the plight of the Ukrainians. And this becomes a geopolitical fight. And this is very much part of our attitude. Like Putin is a dictator. He needs to go. Just like Saddam Hussein was a dictator. He needed to go. Uh, that already shows a reporter that is no longer simply being a journalist. It is a reporter who becomes part of a narrative. And I would also call that a propaganda machine, even if nobody tells him to do this. Mm. And then the other part, uh, which was basically in the, the second half of the 40 seconds you just listened to, is when the reporter interviews uh, Ukrainian civilians uh, who are very happy about being uh, liberated uh, from the Russian rule. And then he hints to the neighbors who are actually very unhappy with the arrival of the Ukrainian army because they have shelled or allegedly have shelled. Again, we don't know and the reporter doesn't know and nobody really knows. Um who have shelled the, the home of these neighbors. And, but he's, I mean, then basically the reporter and the person he's interviewing are very quickly dismissing. Uh, the, the, uh, you know what? Uh, I mean, there was shelling, but let's be honest, this was a false flag attack from the Russians. 
Exactly. So an assumption is being made, whereas surely, I, I've never been to journalism school, but I would argue that surely that could be an interesting story, right? It could be an interesting story about Ukrainians shelling schools or shelling houses that they shouldn't have been shelling and actual Ukrainians in the country, maybe pro-Russian Ukrainians, but they're still Ukrainians, uh, being unhappy about the behavior of their own military. That is an interesting story, but there's no attempt to interview them. There is no coverage given to them. In fact, what happens straight away is that we hear this first guy saying that the neighbors are basically wrong and that the neighbors, have, you know, they, they, they misunderstand the situation and we dismiss it and we move on. This is not collection of evidence. This has nothing to do with giving a honest, fair picture of the situation on the ground in Ukraine. This is once again pushing a narrative. Ukrainian armed forces fighting Russians, the good versus the bad. And we really, really like the fact that the Ukrainians are doing well at the moment. Because, again, all this could have been uh, accidentally. I mean, this happens all the time. That these, the, I mean, that these weapons are not very, very precise. Uh, so it could be just an honest mistake. But the fact that it's immediately dismissed, and I think most importantly, what you mentioned, is that they weren't asked by the journalist, by the reporter, uh, to have both sides of the story. I mean, it's it might just I mean it's probably bad journalism, but it's also um, part of the Western bubble. Is that you know I mean, there's no need to to look further into it because we already know the answer. We already know the answer, and 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 if it did happen that some house accidentally got shelled, like you said, then it was just an honest mistake. Who cares? Because it was just an honest mistake. But when the Russians do it, it's them. Uh, representing a brutal genocidal uh, regime and they don't have any care for human lives. But if the Ukrainians do it, well, that's an unfortunate part of the war. War is tough. You know, very much like when the West kills accidentally civilians in Syria or elsewhere. That's an unfortunate. But when an authoritarian regime does it, then then it's part of a big, big, dark evil that is that needs to be eradicated from the world. And especially there was no need for this journalist in this video to actually put it out there and then let this guy rebut it straight away, right? So it's it would have been already a lot better if he just said, hey, there are some Ukrainians in this village who aren't happy with it and leave it there. But that's not what he said. What happened in the report was there are some Ukrainians who are unhappy with it, but they are wrong, as this guy is explaining. And when it comes to a one-sided story or a one-sided perspective, uh, the next video we would like to look into is from Sky News, also from the 14th uh, September of uh, 2022, uh, where you have a Russian, uh, well, uh, another Russian perspective being interviewed. Um, and yeah, I, th I think we should just listen to it uh, because there's a lot of very interesting things that are being said and how they're being said. Boris Nadezhdin, who's often brought on as the token liberal, tells me he was surprised at the change in tone. Everybody, both people, who is against the military operation and both people who is pro-military operation said something goes wrong. So what do you think will happen if Russia keeps losing, if the Ukrainians keep pushing on? I think you should not overappreciate the results of Ukrainian army last days, last days, because the military potential of Russia Federation is very big and practically was not significantly used in Ukraine this time. Do you think he'd use a nuclear weapon, a tactical nuclear weapon? I think it is, it has very low probability, practically no probability, very bad 
situation will be if Ukrainian army begins to destroy some objects on Russia Federation. This will be very bad, very bad. So what we what we heard here in the last minute, uh, I think that the very first sentence already says it is you have this token liberal, uh, a former Russian deputy, by the way. So he has worked for the Russian government who's being brought on, on, on Russian TV as the token liberal. Um, my immediate reaction was, wait a second, have we have we seen a token Russian, a token Russian perspective? in the past uh, few months in, in, in Western media, someone who's not necessarily a dissident uh, or someone who heavily disagrees with the, with, with, with the Russian uh, stance on, on the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Um, but yeah, so that's, that's something that's completely lacking, right? And I think the, the, the term she used, and we will, hear, we will hear this lady again in, in the next video, I think that's very telling of, of that state, right? That's, that's exactly right. It's, it, and it should be the reaction of everyone. So the moment you you sort of make fun because it's a, this is not the first one. This guy has been uh, mentioned a lot in Western media, like the token and always with this framing, the token liberal and sort of making fun of ah, state media in Russia being controlled by the Kremlin. And it's useful for them to have one guy who's saying the opposite so that they can make fun of this guy. That has been the attitude in Western media about this guy and about Russia. Uh, that moment, the moment that you hear that as listening you should think hang on uh, at what time has there been a talk show in the united states in the united kingdom where there was someone putting forward the case for putin invading not analyzing putin from a distant perspective because some people do attempt to do that but simply when was there uh, someone who was passionately pro-putin passionately pro-russia trying to make the case that it was the right thing to invade ukraine there has been well as far as i'm aware no or at the very least, very few cases of that. So there is the war going on, and we're not at all interested in giving a space to one side of that war, to, to letting that one side explain their position. The Russians actually do do that. They take someone, they take a token liberal who does explain at least the problems with the war, who, who go against it, and that gets dismissed as ha 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 silly propaganda by the, the Russian state media. The fact that we've got a full-blown war without hearing the two sides of the story should really make us think about what we're doing here. And just saying, yeah, but it's obvious that Ukraine are the good guys is not good enough. That is simply not what you want from an open, free, democratic media apparatus. See, when it comes, and now I'm actually going to, to mention the, the German media here. Uh, someone who was almost omnipresent in the German media was the uh, Ukrainian ambassador. I have not once, and maybe uh, there, there were uh, attempts to invite the Russian ambassador, but I have not once heard the Russian ambassador speak. I mean, at least invite him to, to a talk show or to, to, to a statement, because in the end, that's his job. But not once has, there, has, has he been on there. I mean, again, I don't know this. Maybe the Russian embassy has, has refused to answer any of these statements. But... But then at least, I mean, again, I would like to hear the other perspective as well. And I feel like the Russian ambassador would be the perfect person to do that. And I very much doubt that the Russians wouldn't be willing to go on to German media. Um, I, I, I certainly, depending on the program, certain programs, they'd be very happy if they're allowed to tell their story. The mechanism here, unfortunately, is exactly the same of why Russia Today was banned. We dismiss it. We dismiss anything that a pro-Russian might say. So pro-Russian, I should be careful, pro 
war Russian, right? Because hopefully we are all pro-Russians and pro-Ukrainians and pro-Chinese and pro-Spanish. But the pro-war Russians, we dismiss whatever they say as just evil rhetoric and, and, and wrong. And because they're wrong, we don't want to give them space. And this, again, this is normal in a situation that you yourself are called up in a war and you don't want to give space to the enemy. But are we actually in Spain or in Germany or in the United States, are we at war with Russia? And if so, are we then okay with a propaganda machine sort of brainwashing our minds and acting as if there's only one side to this story? That is extremely problematic. And again, this is not done from a centralized perspective. It's not that journalists are forbidden to get Russians on TV. It is simply our mindset that does not allow for the possibility that every story has two sides. And in, uh, this, in the second half of the 60 seconds uh, the, that you heard before, uh, the journalist asks him, so the, the token liberal, about the possibility of Putin using, uh, using uh, Russian nuclear, uh, nuclear weapons. And here I think he gives a very interesting answer, uh, something that uh, actually at least resonates a lot with me, is that mm, this is highly unlikely, there's a very small per, uh, possibility, except when, when Russian territory will be attacked. Absolutely, and this goes directly back to a very practical problem of our refusal to engage with the Russian case because we don't try as a society, as media, to understand really what's going on. We just try to cheerlead. We are cheerleaders for Ukraine. As a result, we've got flawed, imperfect, incomplete information with respect to the war. And we are sleepwalking into potential disasters, right? Because we portray this in such a black and white kind of way, our approaches ukraine you do whatever you want to do and just fight the russians back with all your might and kill as many russian soldiers as you want you're, you're entitled to and show vladimir putin how resilient you are and let's try to get rid of vladimir putin by humiliating him through this war but is humiliation really the thing to do and would crossing the border be actually the right thing to do because we're asking for trouble very serious trouble russia has six thousand nuclear weapons Russia is still, despite its military failures at the moment in Ukraine, is still an incredibly powerful nation. And we're opening Pandora's box if we're not careful. But we can only properly be aware of that if we are open to understanding Russia rather than all the time judging Russia. Um, and the third video we, we want to uh, play here is a Sky News report from uh, the 16th of September. And uh, it is on... Putin and Xi Jinping and Modi meeting in Uzbekistan at the CSO, at the Shanghai Cooperation Summit, uh, meeting there. And again, there's the journalist we just heard before uh, giving commentary on, well, on Putin. Let's just say that. This was a way for Vladimir Putin to signal to his people, first and foremost, that they have nothing to worry about, that all is going to plan. But what was striking was to hear how his answers were riddled with this anti-Western paranoia, almost the persecution complex, this deeply held conviction that the West is out to destroy the Russian state via Ukraine, and that's what compelled him to act. So in these about 20 seconds, uh, we hear a lot, um, a, lot of, a lot of analysis from, again, the same reporter. 
And I believe uh, the, the, the part that stood out to me the most was the anti-Western paranoia. Um, Walter, can you explain, like, do you have an idea of where this anti-Western paranoia might come from within Putin? No idea, Dario. Surely it can't come from those thousands of articles that are discussing whether we can get rid of Putin. And surely it can't come from all those thousands of news reports that are obsessing about how fragile is Putin and how, does it make sense for us to undermine Putin? No, I mean, all kidding aside, it, it, I don't know anything about personally about Vladimir Putin except for what I've read. I've never met the guy. It could very well be that he's a very paranoid individual wouldn't surprise me however to be surprised that vladimir putin is concerned about the west wanting to get rid of him is of course ridiculous uh, vladimir putin is continuously being targeted by the west as an obstacle to peace and over and over again people are discussing his removal from power is it po possible that there will be a revolt or a revolution is it possible that there will be a palace coup in the kremlin all those things are continuously being discussed. And if you or she or I don't think, don't know that uh, the Western intelligence agencies would be very happy to facilitate a coup against Vladimir Putin, then of course, then, then, then we're just willfully ignorant. And I mean, one of the examples we just heard uh, a few minutes ago in the first video from the BBC, where the reporter was openly speculating about who the retreat of the Russian uh, officials, uh, um, I mean, might might threaten the stability of his regime. And then in the video before, uh, the one we just heard now, I mean, she was also asking uh, the token liberal on, "Ooh, what's what's the stability of Putin's regime looking like right now?" So I I don't know where he where he could have those ideas from, to be honest. <laughs> it's 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 absolutely a a really good example of how far we are stuck into this bubble, right? So that we don't even see ourselves anymore. If I were a leader and I would have the most powerful countries in the world with the media continuously writing about my removal and and you, you can feel the, the desire for my removal throughout all of these articles and throughout the way they speak about these things, I would become incredibly paramo paranoid. I, 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 would, I would be terrified every day that I woke up, that there's some CIA or some kind of other agency about to to murder me, to assassinate me. So the way that she puts this in this soundbite that we just played makes it sound as if Putin is being crazy for being concerned about this. But obviously he needs to be concerned about this because the West absolutely wants to get rid of Vladimir Putin. And it seems... Seems so obvious that it is a shocking example of how deep the Western bubble can go into our minds. And with this, we're moving on to the last uh, video we want to play uh, for, for you, the listeners. This is from Televizia Polska, a uh, public broadcasting uh, well, station from, from Poland itself. And they do have a, a, a English language version. And this one, uh, let's just say we saved the best for last. Now we move to a tweet of uh, the Russian embassy in the UK, which is famous of its insightful comments. 
This time, embassy quotes Russia's foreign minister, Sergei Lavrov, who claims that any action taken by the Western countries that is aimed at Russia and China is a sign of a fear of uh, competition and honest discussion. At the same time, he's claiming that Russia's arguments are so incontestable, and uh, while West offers only sheer trickery. Good to keep in mind that uh, these are the words of a person who keeps repeating lies about atrocities committed in, uh, on civilians in Ukraine. The lies presented by the Kremlin and Sergei Lavrov are also noted by uh, most United Nations countries. At the 49th meeting of the UN Human Rights Council, shortly after the Russian invasion of Ukraine, when it was the Russian foreign minister's uh, turn to speak, dozens of diplomats left the meeting. Uh, this picture perfectly demonstrates the attitude of civilized countries towards criminal regimes that deny the facts. Now we will look into the never-ending source of Russia's clumsy propaganda. At this time, uh, Putin's loyalists have argued that Ukrainian nationality and language are an artificial construct. Honestly, I don't, I don't really know where to start here. Uh, so you've just heard one minute and 20 seconds from uh, Polish uh, television. Um, they, I mean, they have been accused in the past of having more of a pro-government stance and more of a right-wing stance. Um, however, again, that shouldn't stop us from, from analyzing uh, what it has to say about Russia. Uh, I think, um, I think that the first, the first part uh, is the way the moderator says insightful um as an insightful tweet from the russian embassy the, the sarcasm dripping from it and this this goes back to one of the ways that the media pretends to be neutral but clearly i mean this is of course a very extreme he doesn't pretend to be neutral um it's so obvious but it where people say we show two sides of the story but if you say and i'm exaggerating here a little bit but if you go uh first we'll show you a tweet by the heroic savior of ukraine Zelensky, uh, and then you read out his tweet, and now we'll show you a statement by the horrific dictator Vladimir Putin. Yes, you you showed two sides of the argument, but you put a you know you you framed one of them in one way and the other in the other way. Now that's exactly what's happening here, right? So they can claim that they've been giving the Russian narrative, but of course they do so with the most insane type of mocking and sarcasm possible. And keep in mind, this is Sergei Lavrov. This is the foreign minister of Russia. This is not a an idiot. This is this is a serious person who might be on the wrong side of history. I'm not going to go into that conversation, but who seri who has serious powers, who who has been there for an incredibly long time. And who at the very minimum should be taken seriously if we want to understand the world and we want to come up with solutions. Instead, we just mock him. Exactly, mock him. And then when he reads out uh, basically the tweet, it's, I mean, obviously he reads this tweet out of his personal commentary um, and makes it therefore sound very silly. But if you read the actual tweet, uh, so by the, and we will we'll obviously link all of this in the post description below, it simply says that anything done by the West is explained by fear of competition. For example, sanctions are clearly aimed at removing strong rivals, not only Russia and China. It's, uh, it is fear of honest discussion. Our arguments are incontestable, while, Western's, while, while, while West's offers are sheer trickery. I mean, the first um, and the last sentence uh, he very clearly mentioned, but the part in, in, in between uh, he's conveniently uh, left out or, or kind of changed, changed the wording here. 
Absolutely. And also the content of this, of course, this is from a Russian state perspective. Of course, this is not a neutral tweet or neutral observation by an analyst. This is by the foreign minister of Russia, a country that is involved in an aggressive voluntary war. However, it is perfectly reasonable to point out that the West is concerned with rivals to itself. I mean, that's just a geopolitical reality. And so the content of this tweet deserves some serious attention. That is not to say that 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 he is a beacon of everything that is um, right when it comes to analyzing Ukraine or Russia. It is simply saying, let's take Russia seriously. And the same should be said about Putin. Let's take Putin seriously. The moment you stop taking them seriously and the, stop, the moment you stop either mocking them or calling them paranoid or anything like that, what happened in the previous video, is the moment that you stop your opportunity to connect with a better tomorrow, to find solutions to the violence and to the destructive events that we are we see unfolding every day. And the last uh, the last part we want to highlight here is basically the last 15 seconds of the video uh, you just heard when he calls uh, Russian propaganda clumsy propaganda. I mean, I, I, I don't know, it doesn't have a lot to do with I mean, this is maybe something I would expect in a late night show from John Oliver, but not necessarily from a news broadcaster. Absolutely. And also completely once again dismissing the content, right? I think that is the worst of all of this. The, the fact that from a Russian perspective, and again, I'm not taking a side here, but from a Russian perspective, there's a real case to be made that Ukraine is part of Russia. Now, whether that's a legitimate case or not, I'm not getting into, I'm not a historian, I'm not taking any position there, but there is a serious case that is being put forward that Ukraine is an artificial country created 30 years ago with the fall of the Soviet Union. And you don't have to agree with that case for, for you to take it seriously and for you to try to understand where the Russians are coming from. Instead, we're not trying to understand anything, we're just mocking them for being silly idiots. And that is not the way to create a better tomorrow. And that is not the way to make the West a stronger polity, to, to put the West in a stronger position to by just mocking those we feel are not correct. Mm. And so, yeah, these were the four videos uh, we wanted to, to provide you the audio with. Uh, there's one final video, however, that we do not want to give a platform to, uh, simply because we believe it is uh, very wrong to show this. And not only do we believe this, but also the Geneva Convention uh, relative to the treatment of prisoners of war as well. There's a lot of content on YouTube in particular, but I assume on other social media platforms as well, um, depicting uh, Russian prisoners of war uh, that were captured by the Ukrainian army. Um, and then shown, and I don't know if forced, but even if not forced, uh, basically they had to they had to give a statement. And I mean, sometimes these statements go in the direction of Russian soldiers, please lay down your arms. This is an unjust war. Um, however, it's not about the content of this. It's just that this exists in the first place because Article 13 of the said convention reads uh, all the way at the very end. Likewise, prisoners of war must at all times be protected particularly against acts of violence or intimidation and against insults and public curiosity. That's exactly right. Uh, the, it is absolutely horrifying to me. And it's, it's part of what we mentioned previously in this episode of sort of dehumanizing the whole thing uh, when it comes to soldiers. So when they die, we act as if they are, as if it's a good thing that, that another thousand young men have died on the battlefield. 
And when we then show them, it's as if uh, they don't have any rights. Uh, the Geneva Conventions don't apply to them because they are part of this evil uh, machine. And now it's almost as if we liberated them, as if we, we they, now they're free to speak. But of course, this is probably, these are 18-year-old terrified boys who are now captured by Ukrainians. And let's face it, I suspect that Ukrainians won't be too kind towards them while they they're imprisoned. Um, they, they don't get put up in five-star hotels, let's put it like that. Uh, they now are having this incredible psychological pressure put on them to tell a narrative in front of the camera. Think about the oh, agony that their families in Russia must be under when they see these images, but also possible political repercussions for their, their sons saying things that go against the Kremlin in, on Ukrainian TV. The repercussions to the family in Russia might be very severe. And yet, I haven't seen many articles in The Guardian or on the BBC or on CNN denouncing that kind of behavior. If anything, it sort of gets encouraged because this is all part of this. We're all part of the same war machine against Russia. And we don't care about the soldier because intuitively our... Our thinking is this soldier should never have been there, completely ignoring the fact that these boys had absolutely no choice and they were just forced to be where they are right now. And there's been very little criticism from the Western media on this. Like this is something that if the Russians had done this, I assume there would be a lot a lot more of an outcry about this than vice versa. And, and the Geneva Conventions and human rights would be straight away taken out of um, their folders and would have been read out. And once again, that would have been a sign of of how horrific Vladimir Putin's regime is and how they do not respect any universal or international laws that we have established. But when the Ukrainians break it, we happily share it on YouTube and nobody bothers. There are certain words that you can't say on YouTube, but you can say, or you can put a Russian prisoner of war onto it and interview him. I mean, it's, it's, it's absolutely astounding how there is not more of a reaction against this. And once again, that goes back to this incredible bubble that we're living in. And now that we have basically criticized uh, Western media a lot uh, with regards to its, uh, the coverage on, on Ukraine and on foreign policy uh, in general, um, let's move on to the last category. What now? So, Walter, what's the, what's the future here? Is there, I mean... As always, we don't provide a recipe for uh, for, for solving any problems. Um, we, for for that, I think I think this is the wrong place. Uh, but I mean, what we're not intelligent the... enough for that, Dario. We oh, can just uh, observe the problems, and other more clever people can think of all the solutions. <laughs> I was going to say that it's very easy to criticize things. Um, but so so so, where do we take it from here? Right. So the first thing, and this is very much in line with uh, what we've discussed in previous episodes as well is to understand this. Understand that you don't have to live in a dictatorship to be surrounded by media propaganda. And a journalist doesn't have to be getting phone calls from their boss or shouldn't feel forced to do things. It doesn't have to be forced to do things in order to be a little cock in that propaganda machine. Why? Because the practical reality is that we're continuously being bombarded with a very narrow, specific narrative. And we need to expose the narrative. Hopefully this episode is a tiny little contribution to this. But society as a whole needs to think more critically about this. What do we expect from our media? What do we expect from journalists and from reporters? And do we really believe that it is right for them 
to show all the atrocities by Russian soldiers uh, being embedded with Ukrainian forces, based doing the Ukrainian bidding, and not at all present any counter sides to it. Not at all present the ambiguity of war. Not at all present the Russian case. Are we okay with that as media consumers? And if you believe in a strong, free, liberal society, which I hope most listeners do, because at its core, theoretically, it makes a lot of sense, then you better work on this and you should refuse to accept this kind of journalism from your media outlets. That's the first step. This seems like a great and a powerful moment to end today's conversation on the media coverage in the West on the war in Ukraine. If you have any questions, comments or regards, make sure to send us an email to thewesternbubble at gmail.com and we will try to incorporate them in our following episodes. Thank you very much to the listeners for joining us today. Make sure to join us again next week when we burst the Western bubble. That is it from my side. Um, Balder, which closing quote did you bring for us today? This quote is from Nate Silver, an American statistician who's particularly well known for his work on predicting American elections. A lot of journalism wants to have what they call objectivity, without them having a commitment to pursuing the truth, but that doesn't work. Objectivity requires believing and a commitment towards pursuing the truth, having an object outside of our personal point of view.